Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is calling in from, I think, Oregon. His name is Stephen Bay, and he was Edward Snowden's NSA supervisor. I think we all remember the Snowden show. Steve, how are you doing? Good. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I we appreciate getting answers, too, because it's like we watched, I watched, I know a lot of people who did watch the uh, documentary that seemed to be narrated by Snowden, and yeah. he seemed to be kind of a hero in his mind, and I was wondering, what really happened? What happened during during that time frame that you were his supervisor? Well, uh, I'll try to keep it succinct. That could be a long, a long story. I know, yeah, right? But, we only have an hour. <laughs> um, you know, there was, uh, it was interesting. I only knew Snowden. I was only his boss for a month and a half before he ended up fleeing the country. And so kind of throughout that period, I, and I only known him for about a month before that as we were recruiting him and hiring him. And, um, I, the, you know, he really did a, uh, when I say a good job, I don't mean this is praise necessarily, but an effective job is maybe a good way to say it of, uh, figuring out how to cover his tracks, how to build a cover story, how to um, uh, kind of do what he did and, and take the information he needed. And he'd already been gathering information, by the way, for the previous year um, and get it out of the out of the NSA facility uh, in an effective way, while at the same time maintaining his job, uh, seemingly doing a good job, making building good relationships and those sorts of things. So. Um, you know, what kind of happened was as we about a week and a half, two weeks after we hired Ed, he came to me and said that he had epilepsy and he used epilepsy as his kind of primary way of um, justifying coming in late for work, uh, which allowed him to work late, allowed him to be in the facility when nobody else was around. So he could then um, start downloading information and data onto a thumb drive, which uh, I think you probably know, or many of your listeners know, isn't allowed in most government facilities and without being questioned about it. And so that really enabled him to, um, to steal the information that he had, that he needed to get it out of the um, facility without getting caught. And then um, he was able to build a cover story around, uh, around the epilepsy that allowed him to then disappear for a couple of weeks without anybody realizing he was gone. So all of those kind of events are what enabled him and led up to him being able to successfully uh, do what he did. That he seemed to be really upset with the information that he had. And watching his documentary, I had the impression that he had a, a piece of a very large puzzle. And yes. he was upset with his little piece and decided to do what he did. But it wasn't the big picture. And Right. What's interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, so what's interesting about Ed, if you go, as you read, watch the documentaries, you read the, uh, the congressional investigation report, um, and especially come to some of the books that have been, that have been really thorough in research on him, is, is, it was, it's very evident and clear that Ed was, um, always, I guess, uh, quite a narcissistic person and somebody who had, um, always felt like he wasn't being appreciated or used to his fullest extent with his talents. And so I think that, at least that's the, that's the image that's painted, right, when you, right. When you read those things and, and what they talk about. And so as I've looked back at what happened with him and what drove him to do all this, um, that really helps shape the picture of, of why he did and what he did. And um, you're right. He only did have a very small part of the picture in terms of what, of what um, he was taking, what he was claiming. In fact, one of the big misconceptions about Ed is that Ed didn't have any intelligence experience before that month and a half working for me. Um, he was an, he was an IT sysadmin. And so he had, he was able to know that certain programs existed, certain NSA capabilities were out there, but he didn't know and didn't have any context around the true capability of those, of those programs, nor the protections that NSA had from compliance, um, from their compliance team had put around them to protect U.S. person data information, those sorts of things. And so when he releases all this, he does the interviews and he does the, um, uh, uh, the documentary, um, and, 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 and allows these things to be published and gets his commentary in the newspapers. It's lacking a lot of context and it's lacking a lot of accuracy in terms of what the U.S. is really doing with this data. Um, so that was, I think, probably one of the bigger frustrating things for those of us that had had access to these programs and that had, that were working at NSA and kind of saw behind the scenes uh, that Ed did have a small part of the picture. Um, and he, his interpretation of it wasn't necessarily correct, but that interpretation is what drove him 
allegedly to be angry, upset, frustrated, both with his role as well as with what he perceived NSA was doing and thereby driving him to do what he did. So I'm of the understanding that he doesn't have a formal education and that he he just had some special training through you or or the NSA to do what he was doing? Yeah, so yes, he didn't have any formal education. It's interesting, he actually fibbed on his resume where um, it was, he said he didn't have a bachelor's degree, which was accurate, and that was on the resume, but that he, he put on there that he was pursuing a master's degree out of a university in, in the UK that really only, when we asked him about this, this was his explanation, was that it only required a, a demonstration of competency and capability, right? That, that he was self-taught in cybersecurity, information security, and, and these things, um, and, and, and technology, that it really enabled him to, to demonstrate that competency and get accepted in. So, yeah, he didn't have the formal education, um, but I think that's really common in, um, in information security in particular. You have a lot of people, a lot of the more really talented folks that work in hacking and work in, in cybersecurity, at least uh, maybe that might be changed a little bit now, but they they were kids that were hacking these computers growing up and became really technical, and some of them got in trouble for doing it, um, and they're just kind of self-taught. And so I know that's all, uh, I don't know if it's a correct approach that I take, but I often look more for competency and skills and talent than I do the formal education. I've seen plenty of people, especially in my field, information security, that um, – have a master's in cybersecurity, but don't seem to know, know a lick about it. And so um, it's kind of a hit or miss thing. Yeah, and I, I should add, I should add it just real quick. It was re- it's really evident that when we interviewed him, that Ed, Ed's extremely intelligent. He's a very smart guy. There were a lot of people that tried to, um, uh, I guess, tear him down after all this happened. He didn't really know what he was doing and he wasn't qualified and these sorts of things. And um, despite the fact a lot of negative things happened for me because of what he did, I can be intellectually honest and, and admit he was he's intelligent he, and he knew his stuff. He knew his technology. And, and knowing what I knew at the time, you know, I would have hired him again you know, just because he, he knew what he was doing from an IT standpoint. Do you consider him a traitor or a hero? Uh, that, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, it, it's never as black and white as that. I mean, I'm, I'm in the I'm definitely not in the hero camp. Um, I, I'm definitely more on the anti-Snowden side of it, but I try to look at the situation more um, holistically, right? The reality is, is on the negative side, Ed did huge amounts of damage to our national security. It's one of the um, biggest breaches in U.S. history. Huge amounts of money had to be spent to recover from it. Um, collection intelligence assets across the globe were compromised, um, and, and the NSA lost a lot of collection ability and, and intelligence. Because the, one of the unfortunate realities of, of what Snowden did is, is his motivation was to reveal to the American people that that there were abuses being perpetrated against them, that NSA was spying on them, right, at the U.S. But yet, very, 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 very little of the information that is actually released had anything to do with that. It was almost all legitimate legal foreign intelligence, which, um, and ultimately, I think that's what will get him in the end if he ever comes back. But on the other hand, it's you know, again, it's easy to look at what he did that was bad. On the other hand, Ed um, opened a lot of our eyes to the importance of privacy and the importance of the Fourth Amendment and how we should take it seriously. And it opened up a discussion about what does the Fourth Amendment really mean? Is, is unauthorized search and seizure, unlawful search and seizure, is that primarily a, a physical thing and a police thing? Um, or do our di- does our digital footprint and the Internet and those sorts of things fall within the context of that as well? And so, so I think he really opened up that discussion and enabled us to have these conversations. And ultimately, finally, after three or four years, we got to the point of not only asking, well, what right do we have to privacy from the government, but also what right do we have to to privacy from organizations like Facebook and Amazon and Google and so on and so forth. Do you think it's um, just by chance that he's now living in Russia? Man, that's that's another uh, interesting question. Again, this is, (laughs) yeah, this is, it's good though. Um, I personally don't, and I want to I want to caveat all this with it's just speculation and it's just um, kind of looking at the situation as a whole. Um, I think he would have preferred to have gone somewhere else, but I think it's I don't think it's chance that he ended up there, and that I think Putin is thrilled to have him. I, I think he's done um, 
he's been a net benefit for Russia. I think all of the all the information that he released to the public, obviously Russia and China and these other countries were able to also grab and, and analyze and get. But I have to imagine that his price of admission to staying in Russia was everything that he took, right? So uh, including the stuff that wasn't released. So whether or not that's true, um, I can't confirm, but um, I certainly would be shocked if it wasn't true, right? If you, if you kind of flip the script on, it, on its head and a Russian intelligence agent with millions of top-secret Russian do- documents fled to the United States and we gave them a silence, we're not going to put them up in a house in Missoula, Montana and say, have a good life. It's you know, you're going to get an apartment in Arlington, Virginia, and your ne- your roommate's going to be a CIA agent, and the apartment next door is going to be CIA or something, and you, and your price of admission for, for us protecting you is is the goods, right? So yeah. I think Putin's thrilled to have him. And then on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of speculation out there. That, I mean, we ask about, well, did he do this alone? Was he driven by anything? You know, there's some evidence out there now that he was involved in the group Anonymous early on uh, with Anonymous, or as early as possibly 2004. Um, the research is still ongoing on this and, and such, but, um, you know, the question has to be asked that in his, in his participation in these online forums and these groups like Anonymous and other groups about internet anonymization, did he reveal who he was? And were, was, is it possible that agents of a foreign power may have keyed into this and maybe, maybe not overtly, but more covertly kind of pushed him to do what he did, enabled him to do what he did and to help him execute it? Again, maybe maybe Ed had no idea, but I think that that's definitely a, a very reasonable and somewhat likely possibility. Well, I know when we got the news that um, during the last few months of last year that the Russians had infiltrated a lot of things, Snowden was the first name that came to my mind. Yeah, yeah, and that have that me too. And that's one of the interesting things about this and why. Um, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that Snowden's just in Russia and he's not hasn't done any additional harm or he hasn't had any impact on U.S.-Russia relations. I mean, to me, I find it hard to believe it's a coincidence that about a year after he landed in Moscow, all of a sudden Russia kind of changed his tactics and Putin changed, changed their tactics in terms of the way they 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 in, uh, interact with the United States, the intelligence operations. You know, they went from. I mean, there was, they've always kind of been a, there's always been tension between our two nations, right? But it really feels like that 2015 time frame, um, we start seeing Russia get more uppity. There's, there's conflict with, with the Ukraine and, um, and getting more, I guess, uh, more aggressive in their region and in, in Eastern Europe and maybe even Central Asia. And then we see things like the DNC hack and a lot more cyber information security and cyber breaches. Um, there's the influence, the Facebook influence and the election interference and the things that have happened since. And it just really seems to me that Russia changed their tactics around 2015. And um, one one can't help but wonder if it would have, after having a year to go through these billions of documents and really analyze and understand both United States intelligence capability the collection, the mindset of Americans, and maybe how it changed their view, did that drive some of their their tactics, their approach, and the way that they operated and functioned? Yeah, I'm I'm with you right there. I, I just think the whole thing is kind of stinky, and I, I find it amusing yeah. that he and his family wanted him to be able to come back to America. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just... Two thoughts on that. One, you'd go to prison, and if you weren't in prison... I don't know about the American public. They would probably go after him. He'd have to have a well, huge think, security detail. Possibly, I think. I think it's a it's split. One of the you know I do a I do a lot of public speaking, and uh, I've been all over the country speaking about Snowden and such. And um, it really varies in the reception and the feel for him. There's a, there's a significant portion of the population that views him as a hero. And what's interesting about this is it's one of the few things that crosses party lines. Right? We may be divided as a country politically right versus left, Republican, Democrats, so on and so forth. But Snowden seems to be the one that crosses lines. I know I have many, many conservative friends and many, many liberal friends, for instance, who are very pro-Snowden and think that what he did was wonderful and he was a hero and those sorts of things. And I've also got many friends that are conservative, many friends that are liberal, that um, that think what he did was egregious and that he was a traitor and he should be prosecuted. And so it's really interesting how it kind of crosses party lines. But I think what I'm concerned about if he came to the U.S. is I think I get the feel 
there's generally a more positive view towards Snowden than a negative one, at least out, uh, generally speaking. But maybe there's a silent majority that's that's more angry at him. Um, that the public perception, and really depending on who's the president is at the time, if they're kind of uh, more uh, favorable towards him, would would use that as justification for him to to uh, either a get pardoned or b not get prosecuted. That said, I do think going back to my comment earlier that if he did come back, he would face a trial. And that majority, that 95 plus percent of the things that he leaked that were legitimate legal foreign intelligence capability that was blatantly illegal, right? That had nothing to do with alleged illegal activities by the United States, um, would ultimately be what hung him. I think that if he had only taken documentation that had to do with domestic surveillance and illegal activities, uh, that, and then that's all he released, then, then he'd probably at least have more of an argument and to be able to um, to be found not guilty or to be pardoned or something along those lines. Now I know he has um, a desire to go to South America, and I'm I'm imagining probably a country like Ecuador that doesn't have uh, he can't be what's it called extradited. Extradited, yeah. And do you see him ever going to South America, or do you think he's going to end up in Russia? Living in the palace with Putin. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, I think he ends up either in Russia the whole time or he ends up back in the United States at some point. And and I think the way he gets back to the United States is either by a pardon um, or kind of a preemptive pardon, if you will, or a Putin trades him. Right. We we end up getting some Russian intelligence assets, somebody that Russia values, and then they do a trade. Um, Those are the only two ways I see him coming back to the U.S., Um, and the reason I don't see him necessarily going to Ecuador or other countries is that, yes, while Ecuador, is, I believe, is a non-extradition country, and that's where he wanted to go originally. And, and he also wanted to try to get to a couple of European countries that, that would, he felt would view him more favorably and those sorts of things. Um, but the reality is that I think the geopolitical pressure that would be put on Ecuador being a relatively small country um, by the United States would probably be pretty substantial and would discourage them. From, from really poking the bear, you know. I think Russia is in a unique place. It would be like kind of Russia, China, a handful of other countries where they're kind of used, you know, their relations aren't there with the U.S. that they have to worry about being poked. Or even if there isn't a good relationship with the U.S., drawing the U.S.'s ire is not a big deal to them. And so they, um, I, I, I do think that any small country um, that kind of tries to balance itself with the United States and with you know, say the the Eastern Bloc, if you will, going back to our old Cold War verbiage, um, it's going to probably steer clear of it, in my opinion. Okay, we have a caller, Richard. What's on your mind? I wanted to ask uh, what the guest thinks our uh, current level of surveillance that we're under is now. How much information are the telecommunication companies collecting on us? And uh, you know where are we headed. I'll take your answer off here. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Good stuff. Well, thank, thank you for the question. Um, I've always felt like NSA surveillance of the of American people has been way overblown, um, personally. Um, they, there's significant in, uh, laws in place as well as oversight and compliance in place that strictly define and protect U.S. information, U.S. person information from being collected and analyzed and gathered and those sorts of things. Now, um, the, the, the gray area there is around the, the raw data collection, the unanalyzed data, right? It's, and, and being able to scoop up international communications and to enable intelligence before anal- analyzing occurs. And that's where the big gray area hits, right? To me, I don't view that as intelligence collection. A lot of people do. So that's kind of the gray area. Now, um, because the, the, the National Security Agency, the CIA, they are primarily um, uh, chartered for foreign intelligence. Uh, in their particular domains. And so U.S. operations are illegal or with a warrant or there has to be some very special case to do it, you know, usually terrorism or something like that. Now, on the other hand, you do have the Department of Homeland Security and you do have the FBI. And I didn't work in those organizations. And and, uh, and honestly, if I did know, I couldn't probably say it anyway. But um, the, the being a, being domestic organizations responsible for domestic security, um, those are probably the groups that are more concerning to me than NSA or um, or CIA would be uh, domestically. Now, as for the future moving forward, I do think that what happened with Snowden um, further um, disciplined, I would say, NSA um, in, in terms of trying to stamp out people who were using their platform internally for 
um, unauthorized illegal things um, and trying to steer clear of, of the more controversial type intelligence collection, those things that, that straddle that gray area. Um, and so I do think things like what happened with Snowden and such um, did drive them to be more more careful and to protect our rights and our privileges um, more thoroughly. I, I personally, I've never subscribed to the belief that NSA was widely spying on the on Americans, and I don't think they were, and I don't think they are now. Yeah, I don't. I didn't think they were back then either. I just thought the whole thing was uh, different. <laughs> we have another caller, and his name is also Richard. Richard, what's going on? So from a compartmentalization standpoint, for somebody who didn't or wasn't in a leadership position within the agency, uh, yeah. did Snowden get what appeared to be full system access? And then what changes have, uh, I guess, the entire IC made to introduce more compartmentalization and physical security for their systems? Yeah, good question. So um, the, the the congressional investigation report wasn't super 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 thorough on this, but um, it does appear one of the things that uh, does appear to have occurred is an issue with Snowden's um, IT accesses. So one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that before Snowden joined my team and joined the intelligence side of NSA, he was a technology guy. He worked in the IT department. Um, and so as an IT guy, obviously, he wouldn't have access to the intelligence and the raw data. You know, you keep the separation of duties, right? You have your, just like any company, you're not, your accountants aren't going to have access to the IT systems in your company, and your IT folks aren't going to have the ability to view and access and edit the accounting and the financial data of the company. Uh, you know, their job is the IT systems. It's making sure things are up and running, fixing things, and, and kind of that back-end support. So one and, it, and Snowden readily admitted, by the way, that he targeted my job and my position specifically to get Intel access. So he was never an intelligence analyst. He'd never done Intel work, and and so when he'd only done the IT. Now he left the IT department that he worked for on a Monday, and he joined my team in intelligence on a on on, on Friday, and joined the IT or the intelligence site on a Monday. The question that has to be asked. Did NSA follow their internal protocols and their policy, and did they turn off his accesses, his, his admin rights, if you will, which is what we call them in the tech world? Did they turn off his admin rights on that Friday when he left, or did, was he able to maintain those over a period of a, of a couple of weeks or days or however long it took to get that transitioned? Uh, to me, looking at what he took and how he took it, um, and the fact he was able to and they re-enable his computer to allow thumb drives to work and function, um, suggests that he probably maintained a level of admin access that wasn't turned off after he left the IT department, um, while also then giving being giving the appropriate privileges and permissions to the things that an intelligence analyst would need, which thereby would, would give him close to the keys to the kingdom, um, if you will. Uh, so that's, that's I think, the primary way he did it. I, didn't, I don't know for sure that that is what happened, but that seems the most likely. The second thing is he did... Uh, socially engineer a handful of people and were able to get their uh, was able to get their uh, credentials to get into some databases and systems he didn't have access to um, and he was able to take some information there and then the other part of it though looking at what he took is a really large percentage of it was really scraped off the internal NSA network uh, which which is kind of when I say public, I mean public to NSA, but publicly available, kind of like a Wikipedia, if you will, of, of intelligence. And he kind of um, stole a large amount of volumes on that, that you really didn't need any special access to get. And that was most of what he took. So a variety of things like that are what, um, I, how I think he got it, was just scraping the, the open intranet of NSA, uh, maintaining his privileges, and then stealing other people's credentials. And in terms of changes that were made, um, NSA really centralized security a lot. I don't know where they're at today. Uh, I haven't been in the in the facility in the building for um, you know five years, um, six years maybe at this point. But so I don't know what their operations are today. But I know one of the immediate changes was to um, centralize IT and and just get a little bit more control over it. Right, making sure that that policies are followed and policies are applied and enforced. Um, throughout the environment. I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest failures as we look back is that they had all these policies in place, but they weren't very well enforced. And a, and a policy that's not enforced is just a, a worthless piece of paper, uh, if you will. So um, so those are some of the changes they made was just centralizing security, centralizing IT, and, and giving more oversight to it. 
Yeah, that was one of the things I, I, when I watched his documentary, he did take other people's IDs to access the system. So at least he was honest about that. (laughs) Right. So Richard, did that answer your question? Richard's gone. Okay. He got mad and left. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have a ton more questions for you. We'll be right back. All right. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Stephen Bay, who was Edward Snowden's NSA supervisor. And we're finding out what really happened as opposed to what the documentary told us. And I have people going, so what is Stephen doing now? So what are you doing now? You're talking to me. Yeah, I'm talking to you. No, so I, um, shortly after my time at, at, or after Snowden hit, I ended up uh, kind of losing my access to NSA. Um, as kind of during the course of the investigation, I was a contractor. Those sorts of things kind of impacted it. Uh, so I moved into commercial cybersecurity. So I've been in commercial cybersecurity for the last um, six, seven years. Uh, and I do information security consulting today. So I help co-organizations design, build security operation centers, threat intelligence programs, insider threat programs, those sorts of things. So you're still in the industry? Still in the industry, yep. Trying to help people uh, either A, not have their own personal internal Snowdens, or B, not get hacked and uh, try to keep their information secure. Yeah, when we think about um, a threat to our country, a Snowden in any, you know, whether they're a senator or a governor, or, you know, whatever, a Snowden in a position of power or with access to that type of information scares me more than anything else because it's so dangerous to yeah. us. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's, that's a great point. The reality is, is insiders can do far more damage on average than um, <clears throat> than outside hackers or, or infiltrators or whatever this, the threat may be. Uh, and it's often overlooked. Now, it's not overlooked at places like NSA or CIA. They have training all the time on that. But, you know, you're right. Um, uh, the, the most dangerous people at those agencies are somebody like a Snowden or somebody at CIA, um, like a Hansen, who have access to huge, really sensitive, important data and takes that to another country and releases it out. To, uh, <clears throat> to our government, if you have some sort of agent of a foreign power, that gets into a position of power or at least a position of influence to influence our, our elected leaders. That's a really scary thing and can, uh, can gain access to things. And then in any company organization, whether it's a, a school or a, a Fortune 500 business or a mid-sized business, whatever it may be, um, <clears throat> more damage is going to be done from data loss from people who know your network and know what you have and know what's valuable because they want it, right? Most hackers, they're just out there shooting from the hip. Not, I mean, there are targeted attacks. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, most attacks are kind of targets of opportunity and people who are just vulnerable or weak and they get in and then they have to figure out, well, what do they have? What do, what do I want? And go out and get it. Right. So um, and then it can be contained. Whereas an insider, if they can work, they can get around all of your security protocols and that they should. They probably figured out your security protocols to some extent um, and can do more damage. So, yeah, I think insiders to me <clears throat> is one of the most understated and biggest threats out there that we don't talk enough about. In fact, I, I do see a burgeoning market, kind of a white space market for um, insider threat security and protection and advisory and consulting um, it, it, during the last, really have seen an increase over the last year, year and a half. And I think it's something burgeoning moving forward as well. There's a lot of things that are going on. I, I get emails that say, oh, you know, this company was hacked into and you're a part of mm-hmm. their database you don't know whether to believe it or not because right. of everything that's been going on. And well, well go ahead. and credit cards that end up in your your uh, mailbox that you never applied for. What's up with that? Yeah. So I think I think the la- to, for the latter part of the comment the question, um, I think those are kind of scam slash marketing. It can be a mixing scam marketing or maybe scam marketing. Is that a thing? <laughs> but uh, it is now. I, I think it's I think it's designed to be a way to try to get you to use it um, um, and kind of open an account on your behalf if you use it or um, more exempt more I guess of a sample of this is what you can have sort of a thing right. But to me, I, I view that more as marketing, somewhat on the scam side um, for it. Um, and then I, you know I just forgot the first part of your comment. <laughs> it just slipped my mind. 
Uh, oh, no, just, you know, getting information, getting an email saying, hey, this company was hacked into and you're a part of oh, their database. Right. And I'm yep. like, you know, okay, what do you want me to do? Tell you all my, you know, codes, my passwords, <laughs> my... <laughs> right, well, that's the hard part, right? And one, one thing to note is that no legitimate company... Yeah, when they call you anyway, they're going to ask you for your username, password, and verify. I mean, they'll, do, they'll do an identity verification, right? Like whatever you have previously set up, and they have protocols for that. Um, but, the, you know, the reality is, it's kind of a sad reality, is everybody in the U.S., this is my opinion. I mean, there, there, there is some data backing this up, but I think more research needs to be done. But I believe that everybody in the United States and Canada and, and really anywhere where they offer credit out, but in the United States will stick with, um, has probably had their data compromised at least once in a major way, primarily through the Equifax breach a couple of years back, which which was one of the most egregious and massive breaches in history. But I know I know for sure that my information has been stolen at least eight times, ranging from um, the, the Office of Personnel Management breach, um, the Marriott breach, um, obviously uh, Equifax, and a handful of others. And then not to mention, I have no, I, I can only imagine how many times my credit card number has been out there just because um, the, of all the credit card breaches that are out there. So oh. the reality is, is our information's probably been stolen. Your information's probably been stolen. Um, do a, do a good job of keeping an eye on your accounts. Keep an eye on your credit. Um, it, you know, credit monitoring can be valuable and can be useful or identity theft protection if that's something you're interested in. Um, I don't know that it's critical to have it, but it, it can definitely be a, a warm blanket for you. Um, but you know, to me, I've kind of gotten to, I've kind of gotten past of being kicked off about a point. I'm just kind of at the the resigned acceptance stage yeah. <laughs> of data breaches. And I just I know my information's been stolen. It's out there, and you know, just have to live my life, accept it. Yeah, but you have to, you know, and I I tell people too that you can freeze your um, security or what is it called credit score people. Yeah. You can see. Freeze it so that if somebody tries to open up an account in your name, they can't do it because they have to have this certain password. And it costs a little money to do it. And you have to, you know, if you do decide to go out and, you know, buy a house or a car or something where you have to apply for credit, you have to undo it before they yeah. run your, <laughs> otherwise they're going to say, no, you're declined. Cause I did that. That's right. I forgot. Yeah, and you really have to weigh in, in those circumstances, you know, what is your personal level of tolerance for um, inconvenience, right? We live in such a convenient world today, and I admit that I fall into as much as anybody where, um, you know, to some extent it annoys me when I get these personalized ads um, that are, are tied to something I've I've written down in, on a website or I've, where I've mentioned over the phone, which really bothers me if, if it feels like that happens more often than it should. Um Yet, at the same time, I love the convenience of, say, what Google offers, where I can be on four different devices throughout my day or throughout my week, and I've got my searches, and I've got my pre-built passwords, and I've got everything kind of there conveniently for me, there for me to be able to access my stuff, right? So um, all of us have our different threshold, if you will, of, of what level of privacy and lack of privacy are we comfortable with out there on the Internet, and um, what level of tracking and, and convenience is okay for us. And, and so we're going to have to make choices and adjustments on our privacy based upon that. Like for me, having to call my, the credit bureaus every time I need to get a credit card or take out a loan or something, it just feels annoying. And I probably forget to do it. I'd probably get perturbed about it. So for me, that value isn't there. But for people <laughs> like, and, and like Snowden would definitely be in this camp where Snowden was very concerned about privacy. And it's a legitimate, real concern that a lot of people have. And that he definitely would have probably been in that camp to to take those actions and to live with the the inconvenience and be okay with it. So, I have a question here for you. What do you sure. think, um, Snowden? How do you say this? What do you think Snowden's leak played in the 2016 election? Was there so any influence so there? I, what I think is kind of going back to my earlier comment is <clears throat> I think the the information that that the FSB and Russian intelligence was able to gain from going through all the leaks, all the data um, gave them various insights into the way NSA works, the way the U.S. people operate, the way our government, the way we view the world to some extent. And I think it helped them develop new strategies for exploitation of the of, of um America. When I say exploitation, I, know that I don't mean in the cybersecurity sense of 
exploiting malware or those sorts of things, computers, but more of the these are these are weaknesses that we see. These are vulnerabilities that we see within the American construct, within the way that they operate, within the way that they think, and that by uh, with this strategy, this approach, we'll be able to have influence. And so I think it's it's that sort of insight. And I don't have anything specific, but it was this overall that I view as change in the way they operated and change in the way they viewed the United States. I think because of what Snowden released and gave them that that helped drive some of their 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 approaches to where they influenced the election. Now, I will say, though, the, the concept of foreign powers influencing our elections isn't anything new. That's been happening forever. Right. So it right. Shouldn't be, we shouldn't have we shouldn't be up in arms and, oh, it's so egregious. Or maybe it's egregious. Yes. But we shouldn't be shocked that it's happening to the fact that China or Russia or Iran or whatnot are trying to influence American elections. Right. It's what I mean, shocked me was how many people were that gullible to believe some of the propaganda that was coming out. That's what shocked yeah. me. It was like, really, you believe that? Okay. Yeah. Well, that, 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 that's a good point. I mean, it, what's interesting though is, is when you, is, I think what we've seen, what we've learned about the internet and about, um, society and, and human nature to some extent. And I'm going to put on my, I don't know, maybe my Freud hat, if you will, or my psycho, psychologist hat or whatever, um, is, is their philosophical hat is that when, when something is said with enough authority and, and seems reasonable, um, and, but, but seems reasonable, but isn't, but is a little bit out there. There's a significant portion of the population that's going to buy in or believe it. That, that yeah. says, you know, maybe this is the case. Maybe I do need to consider that because we do fall in. And this is one of the big, big things that I've really been frustrated with about the internet. And this, this is not left or right conservative or liberal, but I've seen it across the board is we very, very easily, collectively as humans, fall into this groupthink mentality where it's very easy to uh, to try to build, and the Internet's enabled this, to be built yes. echo chambers around ourselves, right? And we yes. say, we, we, we unfriend people that disagree with us, and, and we, we're, we refuse to listen to other opinions, and that opens us up to being manipulated and um, and, and falling prey to that sort of, of false, fake news, if you will, behaviors and things that are out there. Okay, we have another caller. Lauren, what's on your mind? Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I have another question related to personal breaches of our our information, a security breach, as it were. I'll tell you this. I'm not online at all. People are appalled when they yeah. when they hear I'm not online. And, and so, therefore, I think, I believe, I have a very low profile. Now, my question relates to advertising recently, similar to LifeLock, I am easily what gullible. I I signed up for LifeLock. I it makes me feel better. I've already had two yeah. or three minor breaches with my LifeLock policy because of outside agents. Now, my specific question is this: I know that with marketing, there's going to be a company, especially insurance types, that will sell you anything. But what we're hearing now is the possibility of losing your home's title online. That's freaking me out. Yeah, that's an issue. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of that. I mean, I guess it's possible. I think a lot of that is is a lot of marketing fud, if you will, for uncertainty and doubt. And I get frustrated when I hear a lot of those ads. I think the risk of that is really, really low. Um, and usually, you know, you losing your your home title online is going to be something that would probably be perpetrated by nobody local and. Um, it can be pretty hard to not uh, to recreate the paperwork. It has happened yeah, here, and it's happened down in, in Green Valley, where yeah. people will recreate the paperwork and then sell your house, and you know a snowbird comes back to spend the the winter down here, and somebody else is living in their house because it's been sold. And well, that's a good point, right? That, yeah, <laughs> that's a hard part. That's a hard part, especially when you're not living in it full time and it's something local and those sorts of things. So that is a concern. But generally, I, mean, I, th- I think the risk is low and the likelihood, uh, well, let's say, you kind of do a, a risk matrix, right? You have your likelihood versus impact. Likelihood of it occurring is extremely low. The impact of it occurring is high initially, but almost always it's going to get resolved and you get your house back or, or whatnot. Now, I, I have read plenty of stories, a handful of stories in which it is a, a complete nightmare in trying to get it fixed and, and uh, get your home back and those sorts of things. Um, but I, but I think, I do think that because of this risk and this threat, 
a lot of title companies and such are going to start following, probably start putting some protocols in place, much the way that, that banks have with credit cards and bank accounts that is de- de- designed to detect fraud um, and will put some protections in for the consumer. Now, granted, it's not as prevalent as bank account and, and credit card fraud and those sorts of things, but um, I do think that even though I think the, the threat and the risk is low, um, I do think that title companies will be putting more security around those sorts of things. Yeah, they've they've acted on or reacted because of the situation. We have another caller, Charles. What's on your mind? Questions. One for Sherry, and that is: Let's say somebody comes back to their house in Green Valley. Obviously, if the house has been sold, the locks will be changed so they can't get in. Right. But let's say the person has ID that says they live there, and they call the police and say, I, "There's someone who has in, invaded my house." How will the police react? Well, I'd I'd like to know what idea are they producing because I do loan closings, land transactions all the time. People hand me an idea, driver's license with some other address on it, but they are the person who, you know, is either buying the house or selling the house or refinancing the house. So, you know, that's not going to prove anything. They have to go through um the FBI. <laughs> it's a it's loan fraud. And, you know, they have to start the process, and it's costly, it's time-consuming, and it's not a pretty picture. But the people who usually create these false documents, they're gone. So is your money. Second question for Stephen, if I may. Stephen? Yep. Are you? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yep, I got you, bud. Yeah, you're good. Okay, good. Stephen, Based on some, and, and I like what you said about getting involved in an echo chamber where you can only hear your own, your own thoughts. I think it's a, it's, it is a trap. I try to listen to everybody. And right. when you see some of the stuff that was done, um, in opposition to the previous president, well, things like the abuse of the FISA warrants, things like that, they're open and notorious. They're not conspiracy theories sure. that are proven. You know, and you see how much the security apparatus of the country kind of sort of didn't like somebody who wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. How and, and also you see how much data the NSA vacuums up, like that uh, data center in Utah that's just mm-hmm. kind of made to be an archive of the Internet. How much basis is there, if any at all? What evidence is there that we should trust the organs of our government that supposedly are there to protect us? And I'll listen to your answer on the air. Thanks yeah, for I, you know, I think I think that's a really good question. Um, undoubtedly, the the uh, politics has been around and devices has been around for hundreds of years, right? I mean, you had back at the founding of the country, you go back to the Adams and Jefferson uh, election, the second election. It was hugely uh, uh, divisive and a lot of vile things said. So, divisiveness isn't new, and this current rash of massive devices we've had has been really prevalent since the 2000 election. We've been dealing with 20 years of this. And what I, but what I, where I think the damage has been, has been done is, is that, and it's not limited to just one political party or one political spectrum, is that there's, it just feels like um, that more and more corruption has occurred, or maybe it's just more being um, exposed because of the internet and because of the open technologies that we have that more corruption or more personal self-serving is in place in government. And and also where this divisiveness has permeated our elected officials, right? Now, you know, it, I, I like to, I've always hoped that despite the, the, um, uh, the, the, the terse language, the, um, the, the divisive comments, the Democrats are bad, Republicans are evil, whatever stuff that goes back and forth between politicians that our Congress and, and our Senate will work, behind closed doors, we'll be able to work together, or at least try to, to find some common ground to make decent legislation and, and get things done. And it just feels like that's completely gone out the window. Right now, it feels to me like it's just um, power Power is the ultimate goal, and whichever way we can acquire more power, we're going to pursue, um, regard, and, and that we can go ahead and we can ignore 50% of the population one way or the other, because we are a very split country. Um, and, and the reality is, is the way that I see it, is neither i feel like we've gotten more extreme right extremism begets extremism and so as as the country as, as a good portion of the country has moved more far left more progressive and all that the, another part portion of the country has moved far moved more far right moved more uh more towards that the far conservative side where 
again, that those echo chambers get created and, and there's not a capability or capacity for, for a lot of people, at least out in the public space anyway, like on Twitter, um, to, to really attempt to understand what the other side is saying. It doesn't mean you have to accept it, right? I mean, no, you don't have to change your ideas per se, but understanding where they're coming from and their point of view and then being able to have a grown-up conversation without getting angry is important. And I just think that, that the way that the politicians have acted across the board, um, the, the lack of a chat that they, they gave President Trump, as well as um, the, the way that many on the right demonize um, Democratic leadership and such, it, it's unhelpful and it sows distrust and discord throughout society. And therefore, it causes us as a collectively, I think, to, to just assume everybody's lying to us. Nothing's gonna good is gonna happen. Everything's bad, and it's kind of hopeless. And I feel to me that's what unfortunately what it feels like we're in today. And it, it's a very difficult thing to overcome because distrust has been sown, and and you and our government hasn't done a good job of trying to be unifiers and rebuild trust. And I think so uh, Russia is really happy with the result of that. Yeah, I mean, if you're a geopolitical foe of the United States, I mean, you're you're loving this divisiveness. You're loving this internal quarreling that's going on because a it distracts us a little bit from global affairs and and it doesn't completely like we're still involved with the south china sea and we keep a close eye on russia and those sorts of things but what it also does is it it it, i guess it it ensures or, or it decreases the likelihood that should one of these countries do something like what russia did with crimea that the U.S. is really going to get involved, right? Both sides are kind of, are kind of moving a little bit more isolationist, which yeah. is to my consternation. I'm more of an international affairs guy, so I like, I, I think we should be engaged in it. And, and I think that that was really appealing to a lot of our geopolitical foes, is that I think we're moving more internally focused and will ignore egregious things that foreign countries, our adversaries do on a global, on a global scale. Do you think Snowden's girlfriend helped him? You know, I don't. Um, I, 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 I think Ed. I think Ed was very concerned about um, uh, how to put it. I think he was very concerned about trying, in his mind, to do the right thing without hurting individuals. Right. One of the well, things he that I've always that. Like, <laughs> he, well, he has, but he hasn't. Right. I mean, he has. He, he failed in that individuals that he didn't know, right? Like uh, intelligence assets and those sorts of things. Um, people were harmed through this. And certainly, certainly collectively as a people, we were harmed through the damage done to our national security and the money we had to spend to recover and so on and so forth. But in terms of people that he knew, he never threw me or any of his coworkers under the bus. He, uh, he never, um, outside of like public officials, never really outed anybody, which, he very easily could have done. Um, and I also think he was really concerned about people around him. He knew what he was doing was illegal and he knew what he was doing was dangerous and bad. If he didn't, he would never have flown to Hong Kong and, and released everything. He would have just jumped, dumped it all from Honolulu. So he clearly knew what he was doing was illegal and wrong. And I think that he probably kept his girlfriend out of the loop. I mean, he may have given hints and she may have somewhat known, but may not have known completely. What was um, happening? So I don't, I don't think she was an, a willing accomplice necessarily. It's possible. But I would, I'm kind of on the fence on that. And in the documentary, it shows that he took all this information out in a Rubik's Cube. Is there yeah. anything that, you know, did they have footage, security footage of him leaving with this Rubik's Cube? Does yeah, he, I don't, I don't he, know. He was have, arrogant. That. He tossed it to the security guy, and the security <laughs> guy tossed it back to him like it yeah. was a toy, and it is. But it supposedly had all this information in it. And I thought, is that made up or is that really how he did it? So I don't I don't know if he read really how he did it. Um, If he did, maybe that was how he did it. Um, But the the problem with the movie is I, I like to say the movie was a wonderful work of fiction. I mean, there was there was so much in there that was inaccurate and just didn't happen. The whole scene where he goes hunting with the deputy director of NSA in Virginia and kind of gets called in this. A kind of mission to go work in Hawaii it was a complete fabrication and just wasn't true, right? So I don't, there's so much in there that isn't true yeah. um, that never occurred um, that I don't really know exactly what. And I, I never saw Rubik's Cube at his desk. Um, I've never, I never saw him walking with one, so I, I really don't know. And was his behavior any, at any time suspect? Did he act differently than other people? 
um, you know, he didn't. Of course, I didn't know him that well, right? Yeah. So he was kind of already in the thick of this when he joined me. But but here's a couple of, of things that I did know and I have realized. is One, he changed his behaviors, right? He, using epilepsy, as I mentioned, he was able to uh, change the hours in which he worked that then allowed him to do what he did. He did also ask for access to a couple of compartments that he he didn't have access to um, that weren't unreasonable. And he asked me a couple of times for them. Um, but they weren't an unreasonable request. His sister departments had access to those things, just not the one he worked at. And so it wasn't like, why is that asking for this? He should know better. That's really weird. It was just, yeah, well, it's kind of silly that you guys don't have access to this, but you don't. So you can't, I can't give you this data or this information. Um, and so um, there, those were kind of the only things that really stuck out a little bit. I mean, the, the only other kind of semi-weird thing, but not enough to make this logical leap, was that, uh, when, when he was telling me he had to go on medical leave because of, of his epilepsy, and that's that was his his escape plan was medical leave. Um, so you uh, weren't looking for him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he went a good two weeks before we started the hunt because he was just on medical leave, but he didn't respond to anything. And so he used epilepsy as that excuse, and he said, "I don't want to go on short-term disability. I don't want to deal with HR or the paperwork. I've got enough money saved. I'll just go on leave without pay." And I was like, "And that's so to me that was a little weird because why would you leave free money on the table?" But at the same time, I was like, okay, it's, you know, whatever. It's, it's your life. And not enough there to make me think he's going to steal millions of documents and flee to Hong Kong, right? So Yeah. So <laughs> he thought that part through. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. We've, we've only got like a minute left, and I would like you to leave us on a happy note. Uh, <laughs> are we safe? Is Edward Snowden still, you know, giving Russia what they want and need, or, you know, is that a done deal? I, I think it's a done deal. You know, I think from a Snowden standpoint, are we safe? Um, he he lost all access to everything back in uh, 2013. And so anything he had and he's given to Russia, it's probably already been out there, unless he's been kind of slowly kind of drip, uh, drip, uh, drip leaking it, if you will, right, right. <laughs> to, to Russia. But there's nothing new, and and I'm confident that our intelligence apparatus has completely revamped the way they've operated, and and that a lot of what he leaked and released isn't valid anymore. It's kind of like when your credit cards get stolen; they're really only good for a couple of days before fraud is identified and they change everything, right? So, um, I think ultimately, from the Snowden piece, we're safe. Aside from what other types of in, of insight can our adversaries gain from what he stole? Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been a wealth of knowledge. I want to remind everybody to go to biddingowl.com forward slash law matters for our online auction. Until next week, shop local, stay safe. Thank you.